Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight is June 14th of 2012, and our guest is Dr. Daryl Ray. He's the author of The God Virus and Sex and God. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is called hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org. Our guest is Dr. Dale Wright. He's with us right now. We're going to bring him on. Hi, Daryl. How are you doing this evening? Very well. I'm glad to be with you tonight. Well, I'm happy to have you here. Um, I've been reading your books. Uh, You've written some really interesting things about the idea of recovering from religion. That's our topic for tonight. And you've written a book called God Virus, one called Sex and God. And that's the second book. I'm going to look at the second book a little bit first. Uh, So my question, my first question is, how do you see religion impacting sexuality? Well, I think religion, virtually every religion on the planet impacts sexuality. There are very few that don't uh, get in the way of natural, normal sexual behavior. And religions learned about 2,500 years ago that that if they learn how to control your sexuality, they've got you by the balls, quite literally. (laughs) Mm. Um, Yeah, that's a a bad joke, isn't it? So (laughs) uh, uh, if a religion... If a religion can teach you what to be guilty of, then you have to come back to that religion to get forgiveness for that guilt. And religions are really good at teaching you what to be guilty of. And different religions have different guilt patterns. I talk about that in, in both books, uh, both uh, God, Virus, and Sex and God, only I'd be more specific on the sexual part in uh, Sex and God. So that's that's the problem is religions figure out that they can teach you to be guilty about something you're going to do anyway. Because you're going to do sex, you're going to masturbate, you're going to fantasize, you're going to look at porn. So now that you do that, now you you got to come back to get forgiveness somewhere, and that and then you're locked in, you're you're hooked, you're hooked to life actually. At, at that point. Yeah, sex is such a hugely powerful drive. I mean, it's on people's minds constantly. Um, there's no way that they can repress it uh, completely. So it's popping up in your mind every five minutes at least. Um, so it's, it gives the people a very powerful hold if they can push your sexual buttons. Oh, yeah, it, it sure does, right. So I, I, when I wrote The God Virus, I was, um, I, I think it was Chapter 5 when I talked about sex and God and The God Virus, and the response to that chapter was just phenomenal. I, I couldn't believe how many people really latched on to that chapter and said, wow, I want to know more about this. And that led me to write the next book, Sex and God, because I, after I started looking into it, I realized that, uh, Ken, nobody has ever written a book on sex and God. Now, the, now, don't get me wrong, the Christians are doing it all the time. Mm. Nobody's written a book based upon the science, the anthropology, the psychology, the sociology, uh, the neurology, the, the physiology. Nobody's taken all that and said, okay, how does religion impact all of that? And so that was what blew my mind. Nobody... I could find no books ever written on that subject. I thought, dang, that it, that says something in and of itself that nobody's ever written about this before. It says the power of religion to keep us from even thinking about those two being connected in some way. 
Except, except, of course, from the religious perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh, what do you think about the concept of sexual addiction? Do you think it, that it exists? I, I Actually, I'm very skeptical, extremely skeptical of the whole idea of sexual addiction. Um, I think what we have is, and I, I, I think there's a concept that I've never heard anybody talk about before. I think this is an interesting way to look at it. I think there is re- religious addiction that leads you to sexual behavior. I mean, if we go back to the concept I just said earlier, I call that the guilt or the shame cycle. Mm-hmm. And once a religion teaches you what to be guilty of or feel shameful about, then if it's something you're going to do anyway, like masturbate or look at porn or lust after the opposite sex or have sex before marriage, anything these religions prohibit you from doing, you're going to do them. And then when you do it, you're going to feel guilty and you're going to come back. You're going to have to come back to get forgiveness. Well, uh, I, I think that guilt drives behavior. I mean, how many times have you felt guilty about something and you and then you went back and did it again? I, I I can't look at that I can't look at that porn anymore. I can't look at porn. I can't look at porn and then lo and behold you look at porn. Or I I can't eat that ice cream. I I shouldn't be going to eat ice cream, so you then you go to the refrigerator and eat a pint of ice cream. Well the guilt tends to drive behavior. Now that I don't want to overgeneralize here, but guilt has a lot to do with how people behave. So religion figured this out and says we're gonna make you feel guilty as hell about sex so you'll come back to us for forgiveness. Well, the fact is that that makes you think about it even more, and it drives you. So when people say, I've got a sex addiction or I have a porn addiction, I'm really skeptical about that. I think they have a guilt addiction is what they've got. And I've got some evidence for this. I actually have some clinical evidence for this. I've had atheists tell me that they felt like they had a sex addiction or they felt like they had a, a porn addiction. I even had two different ministers tell me this former ministers, um, one of which is in the clergy project, by the way. And they said that once I became an atheist, I didn't, I just, it's like that, that part of me dropped away. I, I no longer felt, I mean, both of them said, sure, I still like to masturbate looking at porn occasionally. I still like to lust after women. I still like to have sex uh, a lot or whatever, but I'm, I don't seem to have that compulsion anymore. And they were kind of puzzled by that. And when I explained to them how the guilt cycle worked, they both said, wow, that, I think that's what happened is I lost my guilt. Well, once you lose the guilt, the compulsion goes away too. So there's, I think there's something to this. And, of course, an atheist, if you're really an atheist and you've really done good work on yourself, you've looked at yourself, you've, you've probably recognized what parts of your, of your uh, mental health or psychology is is based on unhealthy ideas around sex, hence specifically guilt, religious guilt around sex. And if you're if you're a, a reflective atheist, you've thrown those things out and said, "Well, it's bullshit. I don't I don't need to I don't need to be uh, guilty about these these sexual ideas, these sexual behaviors. They're perfectly normal, and they're not hurting anybody, or they're consensual. I mean, yeah, I want somebody to feel real guilty if they rape somebody." Uh, that that's something to be guilty about, but feeling guilty about you know masturbating or fantasizing or looking at porn or or having two sex partners you know there's nothing to be guilty about there. So I I, I tend to be skeptical about that 
because I, I want to know the I want to I don't want to know the behavior. I want to know the motivation behind the behavior, and that'll tell you more about whether it's a sexual addiction or not. Um, and, and I actually think that drives some other addictions too, uh, especially addictions that don't have a chemical component to them. I mean, obviously alcohol and drugs have a chemical component to it, and and we can see the brain actually change in response to the drugs. But when it's an addiction like porn addiction. Or, or sex addiction, you know, or exercise addiction, or something like that. I want to look a little bit deeper. I'm not going to take that at face value. Does that, does that answer your question a bit? Uh, yeah, it does. It's a really interesting question, and I'm going to pursue this a little farther because um, you just mentioned brain scans. But you know, any activity that the brain does makes the brain light up in certain areas. I think there's just way too much weight that's been put on these brain scans. Um, you know, we know when people are given painkillers for pain, they can get physically addicted, And but when the pain is gone and the people are weaned, weaned off the painkillers, there's not this great addiction that keeps them hooked. It's relatively easy to get off, but it's when people are taking the for example, heroin or some other opiate, to deliberately alter their consciousness or to escape some mental things, you know, that's when we actually get the powerful grip of addiction. It's not, the physical dependence is often compared to a mild case of the flu, and that's, uh, it's not such a big deal. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, so I think you're, what you're saying is in line with what I'm saying is, uh, I'm just saying that there's even less potential for addiction or of, of a chemical sort if there's no chemicals involved. It's oxytocin going off in your brain. It's endorphins going off. It's, you know, other things going off in your brain. You're producing the chemicals, the opioids, in your own brain when you're um, when you're doing this, whatever the activity is. And there's not something you need to be feel guilty about in most cases. But religion takes and makes you feel guilty about it. And then you perseverate about it and think about it a lot. And you, and you go back and do it again. And you've got to go back and get forgiveness again. And it's always, it's a beautiful system. The guilt cycle is a beautiful system because what it does is it makes you come back to your particular God virus to get forgiveness. For example, you never heard of a Catholic priest, Catholic confessing their sins to a Baptist minister. And you never hear a Baptist confessing their sins to a Catholic priest. Muslims don't confess to Hindus. You've got to come back to the religion that you learned the guilt in in order to get rid of it. And that's the beauty of the guilt cycle. It keeps you attached, keeps you infected with a very particular God virus. Now, I wonder, do all religions have the same <laughs> thing of sex and guilt tied together? I'm thinking of some of the earlier Hinduism. They seem to have a lot of praise for sexuality and view it as a manifestation of God itself. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think there's more and less sex positive and more and less sex negative religions. But let's not be fooled. India right now is 100, number 156 in its treatment of women. It is one of the worst countries on the planet to be a female. Probably the few that are worse would be Saudi Arabia. The 156 is nothing to brag about. Hinduism is a very misogynistic religion. Now, what you're referring to is about four, oh, 15, 1,600 years ago mm-hmm. when the Baba, uh, not the, the Kama Sutra was finally finished because it took about a I think about 800 or 900 years for the Kama Sutra to get to the form that we know of it today. And, yeah, there was some very sex, what we would look at today is somewhat sex-positive ideas about that. 
Unfortunately, it was all male-focused in many ways because the male get, gets his energy from the female. And so the, the focus is on how does the male gain health and gain energy through sex and sexuality and through the different tantric positions and all that. Now, modern-day people have papered over the misogynistic aspects of the Kama Sutra and, and uh, early Hinduism, but it was very misogynistic. Um, women were not... Women are seen as vehicles for the men to get energy. The women were not necessarily seen as equals in that process of the yin and the yang and the flow of energy between the sexes. So, But I'm not saying there weren't more sex positive. There are a heck of a lot more sex positive than the Catholic Church has ever been. It's just I don't like to paper that over. I also like to make sure that folks realize that Buddhism is a very misogynistic religion and one of the most more misogynistic people on the planet in, in many ways is the Dalai Lama. I mean, the guy supposedly has never had sex, but he 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 adheres to uh, a Buddhist philosophy that thinks that women have a harder time, you know, achieving uh, achieving the Buddha. Women are a step below men in in Buddhism, and they have been since the very almost the very beginning. There's there's a lot of of misogynistic beliefs around Buddhism. And if you don't believe that Buddhism is sex negative, go look at how it's practiced anywhere but California. California Buddhists, they're an exception to that rule. But look at how it's practiced in Thailand or Cambodia or anywhere that Buddhism is uh, probably the dominant religion. You've got a lot of misogynistic practices. Oh, yeah, but I think California Buddhists would be, uh, you know... Uh, really amazed if they saw Japanese Buddhism, where I lived. I lived there for six years, and you know, Japanese Buddhists, the Zen Buddhists, they go to the temple once a year on New Year's, and they say, "What's the reason for Buddhism? It's to uh, bury your bury your relatives when they die, so the ghosts don't rise up." And yeah, it's Buddhism to them. <laughs> yeah, 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 and it's pretty uh, superstitious in many ways too. <laughs> But uh, well, my my book that I my religious book that I like is actually the Tao Te Ching, which I think is um, one thing. It's nice and short, but I think they concentrated a lot of good stuff there and didn't get too much crap mixed in like a lot of the other religious books. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> it's been many many years since I looked at that, so I'm no expert on that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, before we leave the topic of sexual addiction, um, well, addiction is considered a mental illness in the United States. It's listed in the DSM, and you know, I have, I have some doubts about the whole concept of mental illness. I don't know if you're at all familiar with Thomas Zaz. Oh, I sure am. Yeah. Oh, then now, uh, his books then, were popular when I was in when I was in graduate school many then, years ago. Yeah, so very often it's the behavior we don't like, behavior that the majority doesn't like. They call that mental illness. And it's interesting how it changes over time, depending on what's unpopular and what's popular. Homosexuality was a mental illness before. Now it's not. Sociopathy used to be a mental illness, but then we realized a lot of politicians and rich businessmen were had sociopathic tendencies that's what made them powerful and rich now it changed to antisocial personality disorder and now it's all the poor criminals in this class and suddenly the rich sociopathic politicians aren't mentally ill anymore and you know <laughs> and it's the right. same with sex addiction now we've put this label on well 
you know, it used to be sin, but now we say, oh, no, if you go to prostitutes, you have a mental illness. And that's how we try to stop yeah. people from going to prostitutes. I mean, so I'm, I'm very skeptical. You know, the DSM is not a book of scientific fact. It's a book of political popularity. Well, I, I wouldn't go that far. I'm, I am a psychologist. I've studied this quite a bit. I, I think there are clearly, I mean, we, it's pretty clear the brain can go wrong. There's per, it's, it's an organ just like any other organ. Mm -hmm. Your kidneys mm -hmm. can fail. Your brain can fail. Your heart can fail. There's, there's things that go wrong with organs, and the brain is one of those organs. So what do you call it when your kidneys go belly up? You know, you call it kidney disease when your heart starts having problems you call it heart disease well there's there's brain disease too and there's no doubt about it the brain malfunctions now i think i think there's a lot of social uh construction of mental illness there um, don't uh, don't get me wrong i would very much agree with you and i agree with thomas says to some degree on that count but we've got enough evidence now of the brain chemistry and the neurophysiology to be able to actually track what's going on in the brain much better than we could even five years ago and it's pretty clear for example there's there's this great study that just came out a, a few weeks ago on uh, autism especially on Asperger's and where where the brains are where the connections of the brain are going and you know, for the first time we can see that uh, an Asperger's person's brain is literally wired different than most other people's brains I don't call that a mental illness. I call it a, re a wiring, you know, just different way of wiring. But our society looks at that and says, man, you Asperger's people act very different than the rest of us. And, but acting different is not a mental illness. I, I agree with you on that. Whereas the person who's clinically depressed and ready to commit suicide, that's that's a problem. And that's mm -hmm. clearly a mental illness. The, something's wrong in the brain. The chemical's out of balance they're not they're not able to think clearly they're they're self-destructive you know, there's something going on there and i'm a strong advocate of of doing it uh, intervening i mean we don't want well, people killing themselves you know that's just not a good thing usually well absolutely but uh, in you know in the cases of someone's depressed they usually say I don't want to be depressed. I can't help it. Help me not be depressed. And they want to change. You know, the problem comes when we have somebody that's homosexual and says, I love to be homosexual. And, you know, in the 1950s, we said, no, you have mental illness. And now if we have somebody that shoots heroin and says, I love to shoot heroin, we say, oh, you have an addictive disease. And, you know, we can't let leave people alone to pursue their own happiness. Well, that's true, and what what we're seeing, I think we're seeing more and more of this in the research these days. Is when you when you legalize something like marijuana, uh, or like in in the Netherlands where harder drugs are not as severely punished, you don't get the kind of addiction rates that we've gotten in the United States or in other countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm a big advocate of getting rid of all the Ill, all the legal sanctions on a lot of drugs because I think we're we're fueling the drug wars and in Mexico, it's our own fault that people are killing each other down there, among other things. But you know, that's more a political thing. It's not a mental mental illness or addictions thing. Yeah, I we just, saw a huge yeah. drop in uh, drug use in Portugal after the the decriminalization. So you know, if we want people to use less of these drugs, decriminalize. Right, right. Uh, there's some, you know, I think there's some great research on 
on um, what sexual freedom does to things like um, uh, rape and child abuse. And when when countries stop criminalizing pornography, for example, you see, I mean, I think it was their study in Czechoslovakia found that when Czechoslovakia eliminated prosecutions for for porn, that child abuse and child uh, child abuse and child uh, sexual abuse dropped dramatically, as well as rape. I mean, J- Japan did the same thing. When Japan decriminalized virtually all pornography, the incidence of rape and child abuse dropped dramatically. And there's some interesting uh, data out there. Now, I think it's in- indicative data. I mean, it's a data to examine more carefully because it's a correlation. I'm not sure there's we've proven causation there. But, yeah, I think addictions addictions have such a huge social component to it. We have to be very careful about calling it a, a mental illness. And I think sometimes our own social, as Thomas says, says our own our own social structure actually creates the problems. The problems mm-hmm. wouldn't exist if we didn't create the social structure to support that problem. I mean, Dr. Carl Manager, years, 30, 40 years ago, in his book, The Crime of Punishment, gave a pretty convincing argument that our own cultural norms around behavior and criminality actually cause more crime. And, and you see that in Europe. You know, Europe is doesn't put nearly the sanctions on things that we do, and they don't have near the people in prison. And the more, the more, well, that goes back to religion too, of course. The more religious you look, the more, the more your religious uh, glasses. When you put religious glasses on and define all this stuff as sinful, then you got to put people in prison for sins. And prostitution is a religious sin, if you will. It's a pretty victimless crime in many cases. And not all, I'm not I'm not an advocate of human trafficking or anything like that. I certainly think that needs to be prosecuted. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence that these crimes are really not crimes. They're, they're sins. They're religious. It's a religious concept. And if you look at things from through that perspective, you realize... There's a there's a lot of social costs to allowing religion to define um, human relationships. Mm-hmm. Huge social costs in that. Mm-hmm. Well, legalized prostitution seems to work pretty well. It does a great job at uh, preventing spread of sexual disease, and you know the sex workers are free to come and go. Right, right. And if you've got proper controls, it it really minimizes the amount of human trafficking involved. And I think that's a real crime, is when you criminalize something, you make it go underground. Well, part of the underground piece is trafficking humans for sexual activity, and that's, that, is, that is the real crime. It's like, it's like uh, marijuana or, or other drugs in the United States. When, when they're illegal, they, they go underground. Well, trafficking in humans is a crime, and we're creating that crime by forcing sexuality to go underground, it, it just creates so many problems. I'm I'm a big advocate of decriminalizing a lot of things and putting controls around them, like we do for mm-hmm. alcohol. Mm-hmm. Let's let's license it. Let's let's put controls around. Let's make sure it's the quality of product that should be out there. It's what we do for a lot of drugs. And tax it, it and make so some money. Sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we can start. <laughs> Somebody said if we. If we had a 10% tax on all the marijuana people are using today, we'd get out of debt 
as a nation pretty quick. <laughs> uh, I saw some figures on that the other day, and it was like we could we could pay off the national debt in five or six years or something, you know, crazy like that. I have no idea if the if figures were right or not, but it was kind of funny. Well, we'd sure save a lot. We'd sure save a lot of money on prisons if we would let all the drug offenders out, the nonviolent drug offenders. And you know, if we tax oh, yeah. uh, drug sales, then we'd have income and less outgo. We wouldn't have to pay the yeah. DEA anymore either. Yeah, I, the DEA is. You know, there's so much vested interest in our current model. It's. I, I actually used. We're talking about an area that I used to be pretty versed in because I worked in criminal justice system for the first ten years of my career. And uh, that was that was interesting in the state of Tennessee and Kansas, mainly the juvenile justice system. But that was I saw a lot of criminalization of people that should not have ever been put in a juvenile center, or they should have been treated very differently. Should have been treated in the mental health system, not in the juvenile justice system or the criminal justice system. But boy, we got off topic there. We were talking about. Other things. <laughs> I want to bring us back to your book. Um, in the in the God virus, you talked about Marxism being a religion, and that might surprise a lot of people. How do you see Marxism as a religion? Well, at first of all, it had in, in virtually every Marxist society, you saw behavior that looked a whole lot like the pharaohs in Egypt. For example, Lenin's mausoleum has got him laying out there like the the dead. God of, of of Soviet communism, and you saw Mao was worshipped as the great leader, and even still is today. Or Kim Il Sung, who's president of North Korea for life eternal. So all these people look like dead gods that are that are still worshipped. You don't have to have a, a necessarily a supernatural being to create rituals and religious ideas in people. And the whole idea of Marxism is a pretty um, almost a esoteric, a supernatural idea that, that there will be the rising of the proletariat. And the, you know, the predictions that Marx made were not founded in any any hardcore reality. There's no data to back him up. It was his theory. But it was a theory that looked pretty, well, was turned into a theology in, in many ways of uh, that had a lot of faith to it. I mean, the whole Soviet communist system had a lot of faith in terms of where humanity is going to go with this particular philosophy. It looks a hell of a lot like religion when you scratch underneath the surface of it. Do you, think, been, uh, yeah. do you think capitalism could be viewed as a religion too? Well, I think it's got elements of religion. Uh, it's got certainly got some dogma to it. I mean, communism had dogma to it. Capitalism has dogma to it. And I, I think there's Aspects of it that people almost worship at the altar of capitalism. Some people do, I know, and it's just amazing that they don't see the dogma in that. I mean, there's a lot of dogma around taxes and taxation, and I mean, when, when, for example, Mitt Romney says corporations are people too, that is a dogma. It's a legal concept. I know, I understand the legal concept, but it's also a piece of dogma that says. You know, we should treat corporations exactly like we treat humans. And that's kind of scary because it, it's not it's not unlike we should treat churches differently. We shouldn't tax them. We should defer to them. We should let them not pay for health care for their employees or for their hospitals 
employees around women's rights and stuff. Well, we're now seeing that same thing start happening in corporations. We may soon see corporations being able to say, no, we're not going to pay any insurance that allows you to have an abortion because corporations have consciences. Well, that's that's crazy. One of the most immoral things you can find is a corporation oftentimes. Well, amoral, I saw... Uh, not amoral. 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 I saw a really yeah. interesting post on Facebook. Someone said, I will believe that a corporation is a person when the state of Texas executes one. I, I love that. So I see that, too. I think that's a great a great one. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see that whole idea be thrown out the window. I mean, the idea that corporations are equal to me is, is crazy. Okay, I'm going to get back to our questions here because we've got a few more. And uh, okay. what what is the Jesus trap, and why is it relevant to religion and sex? Oh, that's a great one. Well, I came across the Jesus trap a few years ago when I was talking to a Mormon. I actually, write about this in the story uh, in the book. A Mormon who was an atheist, and he he falls in love with this Mormon woman uh, when they were like 24 years old. They both in graduate school. Excuse me. And he ends up converting into Mormonism. Now the guy's an atheist. He knows what he knows all the supernatural voodoo stuff. Twenty some years later he wakes up one morning in a cold sweat, starts reading the Bible, starts reading the Book of Mormon, and a few weeks later realizes he got sucked into something that was one of the he calls it the one of the craziest cults on the planet. He said, how could I get sucked into the, one of the craziest cults on the planet and have, and get married and have five kids in this cult? And I, I realized there was something going on there, and it's a psychological phenomenon. And that's why I call it the Jesus trap. You fall in love with somebody, you, oxytocin gets fired off in your brain, you lose, you lose your senses. People who are in love are not rational creatures. I mean, just look at the story of Romeo and Juliet. Mm. Throughout our culture, we see... People don't behave rationally when they're in love. They lose their, I call their rational immune system is under attack or can't, or compromised. Just like your body's immune system gets compromised. Your rational immune system gets compromised and you can't see the craziness that you're falling into. Well, she fell in love with this woman. He gets into Mormonism. He, he becomes a major official in the Mormon church in his particular area. All this stuff because he... He lost his senses, so to speak, for 20-some years. <laughs> and he's back to being an atheist now, but as a result, you know, he lost his family. You know, he had five kids, three of which are extremely Mormon and all that sort of stuff. So I call it the Jesus trap because you fall in love with somebody, and then they say, well, you know, I can't have sex because my Jesus says I can't. So marry me, and we'll have great sex. So... You marry the person, yeah, maybe the sex is great for a few months, but then they start feeling guilty. And oftentimes what happens is they, they have sex before they get married. And, of course, Jesus says that's wrong. So let's say you're you're engaged and for six months you're having sex and your religious spouse is feeling guilty about that. Well, when you finally get married, then the guilt comes back, and it that comes back to bite you. Or they use the guilt, you have sex for five or six months, then they say, I can't do this anymore. We've got to get married because I'm religious. I believe Jesus said you shouldn't do this. So then you get married and sex starts again. But then the guilt comes back. 
And oftentimes they won't engage in the same activity after you're married that they did before. You know, for example, maybe they liked anal sex before and now they don't because Jesus said that's wrong. And then, and then the next thing that happens is you have children. But when you have children, the guilt comes back again. This whole process is designed to get you into marriage and get you to have children and, with a, and then infect those children with, with religion. Now, it doesn't have to be Christian. It could be Mormonism. It could be Muslim, Islam. It could be Hindu, whatever. But you might not be religious, but you get trapped into this through this idea of, um, of, of being in love. I'm in love with this woman. I'm, you know, it only feels right to convert to her religion. And let me be clear, it, it can go the other way. But all too often, women in our culture are more religious than men by, by at least 60 to 40. Women are, women are, you go to any church, 60% of all the attendees in that church are, are women. Women are far more guilt-focused than men are in many cases. So the woman converts the man through the enticement of good sex. And then once she's got him converted, guilt kicks in. She oftentimes loses her interest in sex. And what you see among religious marriages oftentimes is they are virtually sexless after 10 to 15 years of marriage. Most marriages become sexless. Now, there's two reasons for that. One is oftentimes they, the loss of variety. Humans love variety in their sex. I said you can only have steak for the rest of your life. Even though you love steak, you'd probably get pretty tired of it after a few months. Same thing for sex. You want variety in your sex life. If your spouse is feeling guilty, then she's not likely, I use she because that's the general direction it goes, mm-hmm. or he, is not likely to increase the variety of sex because Jesus says, for example, anal sex is wrong. Or Jesus says looking at porn while you're having sex is wrong. Or Jesus says, you know, having a threesome with somebody else is wrong. There's all sorts of wrongness that means you're going to get less and less variety if you're religious. Sexual variety decreases in the religious marriage until it finally peters out entirely. Just you don't have any. And I've I've interviewed so many religious people who virtually there is no sex in their marriage after 10 or 15 years. Well, what healthy American male or female or any other human on the planet wants to stop having sex after 10 or 15 years? Here's the worst part, and I write about this in that same chapter on Jesus Trap. People oftentimes uh, find that one spouse decides they don't want sex anymore or they're no longer attracted. So they stop having sex. Well, that means, by default, the other spouse is now celibate. It's involuntary celibacy. And in religion, this happens all the time. You see spouses, oftentimes it's the woman saying, I don't want to have sex anymore, so that leaves the man high and dry. What's he going to do? He he can't go out, his religion says he can't go out and sex with anybody else. His religion says he can't look at pornography. His religion says masturbation's wrong. I mean, this is a... This is a major bomb ready to explode. You can't stop somebody from wanting all this. And so you see child abuse, you see child sexual abuse, you see rape, you see um, porn addiction, you see use of of other people and having affairs outside of the 
marriage. I mean, all this stuff starts happening, and then people wonder, well, why? He was such a good Christian man. Why did he do all those things or, or do whatever that horrible thing was that, that he was caught at? I mean, whether it's Ted Haggard or Jimmy Baker or any of these people that you know, ended up getting caught in some kind of sexual sin, it's, it's oftentimes directly related to this restriction. Whether you think... So, you know, ultimately people stop having sex and then that causes more problems. And that's all a part of the Jesus trap. It's the enticement. God... I actually have another story in Sex and God that talks about this woman who... Uh, they, they never had sex before they got married. And when they did, she... She promised sex would be great because Jesus and God say sex is great after you get married. Well, he gets married to her, and they don't consummate their marriage for three years. She cannot have sex. She won't have sex for three years after you get married. And she was the one that promised him sex would be great because she's so guilty about it. Religion teaches sexual guilt. deeply teaches it, And, and especially to women. So when they get married... They can't function. They don't enjoy sex. They don't learn about their own body. I had one Catholic woman uh, who had never masturbated. She was 50-some years old at that time, and she had never masturbated. She left the religion. She became an atheist. Her first boyfriend taught her how to masturbate. <laughs> I mean, this would be funny if it weren't tragic. And the result of this was this. Damn, I wasted 50 years of my life not having fun because of this stupid Catholic religion. And I had to have an atheist become an atheist and get a boyfriend to teach me how to do this. Because I was too guilty to touch myself. Oh, and by the way, she'd been an atheist for several years before she learned how to masturbate, which I think is amazing. She could have done it the day she left the Catholic Church, but the guilt stayed with her. I don't know if you saw our, our research. Did you see our research on sex and secularism that was done last year? No, I didn't. Oh, good. Tell your listeners to get online and download it. 14,560 people uh, answered 69 questions about their sex life. And these were all atheists or secular, 80% of them were atheists. We only interviewed people. We only wanted to get questions answered from people who were secular. And we found all sorts of stuff out, one of which was how how often, uh, how much does guilt follow you after you become, after you leave your religion. And uh, we found that most people get rid of their guilt pretty quick, uh, except for about 2% of our, 2% of our sample said that sex got worse after they left their religion. And it mostly was because I told my wife I was an atheist and she stopped sleeping with me. Uh, or we had another guy, uh, it was really funny, he's a 20-some-year-old kid, he said, I used to be able to bet every girl in the Sunday school class, and now they want to talk to me. So, you know, <laughs> isn't that funny? I could, I could bet all these Christian girls as long as I'm a Christian, but the minute I became an atheist, they won't go to bed with me anymore. So there's, I mean, access is oftentimes the problem in these, um, um, in, in sexual activity, once you become an atheist, is women... Women are are more religious. They don't want a man that's not religious. I mean, you go online and look at these dating sites, and woman after woman on these dating sites, I'm looking for a Christian man, or I'm a I'm a woman of God. I want to find a man that believes in God as much as I do. And you don't see that on the men's profiles unless they're, you know, not nearly as much anyway. 
Mm-hmm. I'd love to do some research someday on uh, bathing sites and see just how many women are saying they're looking for a man of God that believes in God and is faithful. And then look at how many men use the same language. I'm betting you won't see very many. No, I think so. Well, we're gonna we're uh, gonna close down pretty soon. But before we end the show, tell me a little bit about the Secular Therapist Project. Oh, that is an initiative uh, I started with Hand Hills um, about six months ago. We put together this incredibly good website. Now I'm very pleased with it. I'm I'm not a web developer. Hand's a web developer. I'm just kind of a conceptual guy on it. But um, I don't know if your listeners know. I I started an organization three years ago called um, Recovering from Religion. I, I am now the chairman of the board of that organization. Jerry Dewitt is. One of the very first graduate of the secular of the um, clergy project, he is the executive director of Recovering from Religion now. But um, underneath the, the umbrella of Recovering from Religion, I started the Secular Therapist Project. And the reason for this is I found after I published the Godness that there were lots of people out there who could not find a secular therapist. They could find a therapist, but the therapist they'd sooner or later find out, advise them to go back to church or they need to get right with God or they need to align their chakras or they needed to do some other, you know, new age kind of stuff. So it's actually kind of hard to find a therapist that's not going to use religious concepts with you or new age concepts or super doesn't believe in some spiritual thing. There's a lot of spiritually oriented therapists out there. And so I got email after email from people saying, I can't find a good therapist. Or when I do find a therapist, they're spiritual or they they think I should go back to church or whatever. So um, I, I got on and I started finding therapists and trying to figure out how would I find a secular therapist. And what I realized real quickly is you can't find them. They don't advertise. And then it dawned on me that if, if a therapist advertised that they were an atheist, they'd lose half their clients. Because a lot of clients come from churches, referrals, from ministers referring, and a lot of clients are religious. So they're not going to go to an atheist therapist or a secular therapist. So um, it's hard to find a therapist that's not going to use, I mean, it's hard to find a therapist that you can guarantee isn't going to use those kind of ideas with you. So uh, what we've done is created a dating It's like a dating site. It's like Match.com or eHarmony. You get on, you find, you can search your zip code, see if there's any therapists in your area. If there is, you can contact them through our website. You cannot find their address. You cannot find their, e- their email. You can't find their phone number. You can just co- coordinate or communicate with them through our website. And then once you're satisfied that they're the right therapist for you, then you can step outside of our website and, and uh, make an appointment or, or whatever. If you have no one in your particular area, you can find one that will work with you online or work with you on the phone or through Skype or stuff. We've got several therapists that will work with anybody through Skype. So it's it's a way to connect. There's Mental health issues are as important to the atheist community as are anybody, anybody else. Atheists have just as many mental health problems as anybody else does, but we're underserved. We can't find therapists that will use evidence-based therapy therapy. It's difficult to find. So what we guarantee in our database is that four of us, there's four therapists, um, and we've looked at every single applicant. Any therapist that applies has to pass through a of four of us therapists. We look at them and we say, 
is this person secular or not, or can they keep their spiritual? We don't eliminate spiritual therapists. We don't eliminate religious therapists. But we do eliminate anybody who brings that into their practice. So they have to convince us that there's, they can uh, they can uh, be secular in the way they approach anybody that would come through our site. We have had, just last week, we had two different people recommend their therapist to register with us. So what, what we need right now, Ken, is we need therapists to register on our site at the seculartherapist.org. Um, and we need people, if you if you need mental health services and you don't want to have to look hard to find somebody that's secular, go to our site first and see if there's somebody in your area. Uh, and if there isn't, you, uh, you might want to try distance therapy using a phone or Skype. I've uh, Over the years, I've done a lot of distance therapy with people, and it works Actually works pretty well. So that's what the therapist project's all about. Is that you think that gives you what you're asking for? Yes, and I think we're about out of time now. So I'd like to thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Dr. Daryl Ray. Thanks for having me, Ken. And everybody, come back next week when our guest will be Dr. Peter Venturelli, who is the co-author of Drugs and Society, and I will see you all next week. Good night, everyone.